Good morning, church family. He is risen. This morning we are celebrating his resurrection with songs and scripture readings and prayers and now with an extended look at God's word. So if you would please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, we're looking at verses 1 through 8 together. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 853. Page 853. This is a relatively short text, so I'm going to read through the entirety of it uh, with you this morning, and then I'll offer a word of prayer, then we'll take our close look. So beginning with verse 1, here's what Mark writes. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that is, anoint Jesus. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. In verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's bow together now. Our Lord, what a beautiful Resurrection Sunday you have given us today, and we are so thankful for it. Lord, how precious it is to have one day a year when all of our minds, all of our hearts are concentrated on this great miracle. Lord, we thank you for your Son. Thank you for sending him to us. We thank you for his life, death, and his resurrection. And as we look at this text today, uh, together, Lord, would you please give us understanding? Help us to see the meaning and the significance of this passage. Lord, would you drive it home into the minds and hearts of every person listening to my voice? both here in the auditorium and online this morning. And may all glory go to you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So returning to verse 1, you can see that Mark's account of the resurrection begins with three women who are making their way to Jesus' tomb. And the women are identified for us. They are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Now, Mary Magdalene is a very interesting figure in the Bible. Uh, she lived along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus first encountered this woman, she was possessed by seven demons. But Jesus cast them out of her, and from that point forward, she became one of Jesus' most dedicated disciples. 
She was with him throughout his earthly ministry and with him right through his Passion Week. She was there when he was arrested on false charges, as he was being tortured and then nailed to the cross. She remained for the entire crucifixion. She witnessed Jesus' death, and then she saw the place where his body was laid. Then the second woman was Mary, the mother of James. She was also a very dedicated disciple of Jesus, and she was also there with him during his Passion Week. She, too, watched Jesus being crucified, and she saw him die. Then the third woman, Salome, she was the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. These are the two men who had asked Jesus if they could sit at his right and left hands in his kingdom, which was to come. Salome was their mom. Salome was also a great disciple of Jesus. She followed him throughout his ministry. She was also there with the Marys, and she witnessed the crucifixion and death of Jesus. These three women clearly found a lot of comfort in each other's company. They were together at the crucifixion, and now we see them together again making their way to the tomb to pay their respects to Jesus. Verse 2 says that they were coming to the tomb very early on the first day of the week, that is, on Sunday morning, just as the sun was rising. I think this speaks to the eagerness of these women to come back and see Jesus. You see, Jesus had died on a Friday afternoon. The Jewish Sabbath begins on Friday evening. And so they actually had just about three hours to get Jesus' body off the cross, to transport it to a tomb, to do some kind of a funeral service for him, then to roll the stone over the mouth of the tomb, to get back home before the Sabbath began. You understand, on the Jewish Sabbath, they're not supposed to work or travel or do anything. And so they had just this briefest of times to get the body of Jesus taken care of after he died. And these women felt very badly about that. They didn't think Jesus had gotten the burial that he deserved. And so that's why at first light on Sunday, their very first opportunity after the Sabbath, they are heading back to the tomb. They want to give Jesus the burial that he deserves. You see here in verse 1 that they were bringing spices with them so they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. This is probably a perfume which they would have poured over his head. Just another ancient practice which would have shown the honor that they ascribed to this man and to his remains. The women are making their way to the tomb together. But we notice here, verse 3, about halfway to the tomb they realize they've got a problem on their hands. They begin asking one another, who's going to roll away the stone over the entrance of that tomb? You know, that was a great question because this stone was massive. It was about four and a half feet high. It was about one foot thick. It was made out of pure rock, and it would have weighed more than 2,000 pounds. And the way this stone had been placed over the mouth of the tomb is that it had started on top of a ramp, and there had been a stopper there. The men would have put the body of Jesus into the tomb, and then after they came out, they would have pulled the stopper. That stone would have rolled down the ramp and covered the mouth of the tomb. 
There's no way that these three ladies working alone were going to be able to dislodge that stone. Certainly no way they could roll it back up the ramp and put it where it was. But they hadn't been thinking about this. This has been a very traumatic few days for them, you understand. They had witnessed their, their Messiah die on that cross. They had seen his body placed in a tomb. And now they're thinking about all these final uh, burial preparations. And their mind just hadn't been thinking about that stone. Now here they are, halfway to the tomb, and it's dawned on them that they're going to have a real problem on their hands. Well, that takes us to verse 4 now. They finally arrive at the tomb, but look what they find. It says, In looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It had been rolled back. And the language here would suggest that this stone was not just out of the way, but that it had been placed back up atop the ramp, and it was stopped in place once again. And then Mark, as this humorous aside, he says it was very large, and indeed it was. This just adds to the shock value of that stone being removed. Well, now these three women are, are very distressed, very distressed. What could be going on here? We come to verse 5, they enter the tomb. And it says, upon entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So they're already disturbed about this tomb being opened. Now they rush into the tomb to see what's going on, and what do they find? They find that the body of Jesus is gone. The body of Jesus is gone, but the tomb is not empty there's another man there whom they have never met. Just to help you maybe visualize this with your mind's eye, Jesus' body would have been placed on a stone slab directly opposite the mouth of the tomb. And then there would have been two other slabs, one on the left, one on the right, and this would have been for other bodies later on. So these women walk in and they look straight ahead. Jesus' body is not there, but they look to the right. There's a living man seated on the slab to the right. He's sitting there almost as if he was just waiting for these women to arrive. And indeed he was. For according to the other gospel accounts, this young man was actually an angel. And he had been sent to the tomb by God in order to help the women process what was taking place here. This angel is wearing white to signify his holiness, his heavenly origins. He is an angel of God sent to declare the message to them. Here's what the angel said to the women, verse 6. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, friends, these are momentous words. Momentous words. And we ought to take these statements just one at a time. So let's start with that first. He says, do not be alarmed. Of course, he says this because the women are very alarmed. They've come, they're expecting a sealed tomb, and they're expecting the body of Jesus to be inside of it. Instead, they come, there's an open tomb, there's no body of Jesus, and there's a stranger inside. This is a really distressing situation, almost traumatic in nature. And so the first thing the angel has to say to the women is, do not be alarmed. And what he means is, 
Don't be scared. Don't, don't, be, don't be concerned. Nothing is wrong here. In fact, everything is right. It is beautifully, perfectly right. It's just the way it's supposed to be. And then the angel says to them, You seek Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the angel knows why these women have come. These women saw Jesus die. They saw him placed in this tomb, and they believe that he is still dead, and that he is therefore still going to be in this tomb. That's why these women are here. And this despite the fact that Jesus had told them many times that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. Back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he had said this to them. He said, quote, The Son of Man... By that he's speaking of himself. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He had said that to them. And he said it again to them in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He said, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then he told them a third time in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. He said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning over to the Roman authorities. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. And so over and over again, Jesus had told his disciples how this was going to end. He was going to be arrested unjustly. He'd go through a series of kangaroo courts. He would be sentenced to death. He would be hung on the cross, and he would die on the cross. He'd be placed in a tomb, but on the third day, he would rise from the dead. He told them all of this ahead of time. And in fact, this was all part of the plan from the very beginning. You see, the scriptures tell us that God the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And that would involve a twofold work on Jesus' part. Number one, Jesus would have to fulfill all righteousness for us. That means he would have to spend his days on the earth living perfectly under the law of God, obeying all of God's precepts, resisting all of sin's temptations. He would have to live an absolutely morally perfect life, something none of us has ever been capable of doing. But then secondly, his work was to make atonement for all of our sins. And you see, his sinless life would qualify him to be a substitute for sinners like us. Making atonement for our sins would involve going to the cross and dying there, for you see, the wages of sin is death. Romans 3, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. It's not just physical death, but it's separation from God. It is judgment. It is hell. And Christ would have to endure all of that for our sakes. 
And that's exactly what he did on the cross, my friends. Christ volunteered to go to the cross, and on his shoulders, he would accept all of God's just judgments against all of the sin that we have committed. The sinless one substituting himself for sinners. And there he would offer an all-sufficient sacrifice of atonement for us. He would experience hell itself so that we would not have to. And he would die on that cross bearing the full weight of sin's penalty. But then on the third day, he would rise from the dead, proving that he had made an all-sufficient atonement for our sins. If the, if the wages of sin hadn't been fully paid yet, he would still be in the grave. He rose to show that it was a completed payment. Rose to show the Father had accepted his sacrifice. Rose to show that he was who he claimed to be, namely the Son of God, who had authority to lay his life down and also to raise it up again. And so this was all part of the plan. It was the means by which Jesus Christ would become the Savior of the world. But the problem for these three women and for all of Jesus' disciples is that before any of these things happened, it was just too much for them to grasp. People don't rise from the dead. Not literally. And you people know it, and I know it. People die, but they don't rise from the dead the dead. And so every time Jesus would speak about him dying and rising, they thought he must be speaking in figurative terms, spiritually dying and rising, or maybe falling out of favor with people and coming back into favor. He had to mean something figurative, certainly not a literal death and resurrection. And so that's why when Jesus finally did physically die, they expected him to stay in that grave. That's why on the third day, they weren't looking around the city trying to find the living Jesus. They were back at the tomb looking for his corpse to complete his burial. They understood that dead people don't come back to life. Except in this one case, a man would come back to life. Look what the angel said next. He said, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. One time in human history, a man died and then rose from the grave under his own power. Jesus said, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to raise it up again. And he did it. And so the angel declared to these women, that same Jesus that you saw dead on a cross three days ago, that same Jesus is alive today. His heart is pumping blood again. His lungs taking in oxygen again. The brain waves are firing. The feet pierced with nails. They are treading on the earth again. That same Jesus, he is risen. He has walked out of this tomb. He's not here anymore. And then the angel says this. See the place where they laid him. And I imagine the angel directing them with his hands. See the place. See the slab where he used to be. Now question, how would an empty slab prove the resurrection? Couldn't it just prove that grave robbers had come and snatched the body? Couldn't it just prove that these women had gotten the wrong tomb? He's down the road, not at this one. 
how would this empty slab prove the resurrection? Well, friends, John's Gospel tells us something very interesting about that slab. It tells us that Jesus' body was gone, but that all of his grave cloths were still there. And those grave cloths were arranged in the most peculiar manner. Listen as I read from John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. John writes, The linen cloths were lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. What's John getting at here? Well, let's return to Jesus' burial for a moment and see if we can picture this in our mind's eye. So the scriptures tell us that Jesus' body was removed from the cross, taken to the tomb by two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And here's how they would have have buried Jesus. First, they would have covered his body in paste from the shoulders to the feet. And then they would have taken a white roller bandage. They would have wrapped it around the body of Jesus, all the way around from the shoulders to the feet. And they would have tucked in spices with those bandages. In fact, about 75 pounds worth of spices would have been tucked into those bandages. So they bandage him up, shoulders to the feet, And eventually that paste would start soaking through the roller bandages. And then it would harden, forming something like a body cast. They then would have taken a strip of white linen. They would have wrapped it around his head. That was a chin strap to keep his mouth closed. And then they would have twisted together a turban, placed the turban on top of his head. Finally, they would have laid him down on that stone slab on his back. And that is how Jesus would have been sealed in the tomb. According to John's account, and this is what the angel was directing the women to, I believe, was that the body of Jesus was missing, and yet the turban and the body cast were still there. And they were lying exactly as they would be if a body was still in them. In other words, here are the linens. They're wrapped up. The spices are still in it, but it's hollow now. And over here, we've got an empty space where the face of Jesus should be. But then here, we've got the turban, and it's still folded up, and it's off off in a place by itself, because it would have been on the top of Jesus' head. The angel is saying, he is not here, he is risen, and here's the proof. Look at the slab. You see no body, but you do see his wrappings. There's a body cast. There's a turban. They're right where they would be if a body was there. But it's just hollow now. It's as if the body of Jesus had just passed through the wrappings and then just walked right out of the tomb. And friends, this sight was game-changing for everybody. This was game-changing. This destroys the grave robber theory because this is not how a grave robber would do his deed. Okay, He's not going to enter a tomb, slip a corpse out of its body cast, set the turban gently back on the slab, and then run away with an unclothed corpse on his shoulder. He's not going to do that. There was no grave robber here. It also destroys the wrong tomb theory. No, these women had the right tomb because that's where Jesus was laid. His, his casting is still there. For that matter, it destroys the hallucination theory as well, which suggested all this was just some crazy daydream on the lady's part. No, friends, this was a real time, space, matter experience. 
The tomb was cold. The bench was hard. The linens were present. The spices were giving off their aroma. It was a real event, and these three women witnessed it. Jesus really had risen from the dead. And it was the kind of thing that needed to be shared. And so we come to verse 7, and the angel says, Now go, go, tell his disciples. And then he singles out Peter. Tell the disciples, and Peter. Now poor Peter. He had been the boldest, brashest of all the disciples before the crucifixion had happened. He was the one declaring his lifelong fidelity to Jesus. But then Jesus was arrested, and it completely shattered everything Peter thought he understood. Peter had this terrible crisis of faith. He didn't know what to think anymore, what to believe. He finally publicly distanced himself from Jesus. He denied that he even knew Jesus out of fear of being associated with him. The next morning, Peter heard a rooster crow, and his mind kind of snapped back into gear, and he was so ashamed of himself. Scriptures say Peter wept bitterly when he realized what he had done. He thought he was beyond grace at this point. He had denied the very Son of God. And so the angel says, To these three women, Christ is not here. He has risen. Now this is something that has to be shared. So go to the disciples, tell them all about it, and also make sure you tell Peter. Peter needs to know this too. Let Peter know that everything is okay. Jesus is back from the dead, and Jesus wants to see him. He wants to see Peter. He wants to restore Peter. Peter was not outside The possibility of forgiveness, nobody is. So tell the disciples, tell Peter. And tell them what? Well, here's the content of the message, verse 7. That he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Just as he said. Now, friends, there are no fewer than 18 passages in the Gospels where Jesus predicts his physical resurrection. The disciples hadn't understood those teachings at the time that he gave them, but they would understand them now. As they met together in Galilee, they saw Jesus with their own eyes, then they would finally understand. But look what happens right now, verse 8. Here's how Mark uh, concludes the story. He says, And they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized him, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So the angel says, he's risen, he's not here, go tell everybody. And they run out of the tomb and they tell nobody, because they're terrified. They're terrified, and we can't be too hard on them, because we would have reacted exactly the same way. If you're expecting to find a corpse, and you find nothing but his linens, and then somebody tells you he's risen from the dead, you're going to find that difficult to process. You would need some time to process all of this as well. And so these ladies, they run out of the tomb. They tell nobody because they are scared. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to believe. They don't know what to make of any of this. They just need some time. But my friends, soon that will change. They will see the resurrected Jesus for themselves. 
and then they will realize everything they had just heard from the angel was true. And after that reassurance, they will go to the disciples and to Peter, and they will give them the message, go to Galilee. They're in Jerusalem right now, but they'll get the message, go to Galilee, and there the risen Jesus will see you. And those disciples, they're going to see Jesus face to face, and there will be laughing, and there will be crying, and there will be embracing, and there will be feasting, and there will be teaching. And from there, news about Jesus will spread far and wide. And after this, the world will never be the same. My friends, this text recounts the most momentous event in human history. A man died, and then he rose himself from the grave. This is the biggest event in world history. This is the fulcrum upon which all of history bends. And it's such a significant event for you and I as well. Friends, this is a significant event, not just because a man rose from the dead, though that is singularly spectacular, but it's not just because he rose. It's because of what it means that he rose. Let me suggest three things that his resurrection means. First of all, it means that we have reason to believe everything that Jesus taught. We have reason to believe everything Jesus taught. See, friends, during his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus made some remarkable claims. For example, he claimed that he was the Son of God. Not in the sense that we are all children of God, but uniquely, eternally, the Son of God. That the person of Jesus was full deity with full humanity. One person, two natures. He claimed that of himself. He claimed that if you saw him, you were seeing God. He claimed that his words were the words of God. He claimed that he had the power to forgive human sins. He claimed that his death and resurrection had the power to make full atonement for human sins. He claimed that everyone who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He even promised this, John 11, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never really die. He promised that just as he rose from the dead, so all who believe in him will one day rise from the dead. He promised a kingdom and glory to come. Jesus made a lot of promises. How could anyone believe such promises? Well, Jesus told us how we could believe him. He said, I, I declare all of this to you and I offer you this as my proof, I will go to the cross, I will die, and I will be in the tomb for three days so you know I'm really dead. <laughs> and then the third day, I will rise from the grave. He says, if I can do that, you can believe everything I've said to you. If I can't do it, I was a fraud. Jesus rose from the grave, so everything he said he was Every teaching that he gave, every moral precept, every spiritual instruction, every promise, all of it we can take as truth. The resurrection of Jesus means that we have reason to believe everything that he said. Then secondly, 
Jesus' resurrection means that we have a cause to live for in the here and now. We have a cause to live for. Going back to Mark chapter 16, remember what the angel said to the women after he announced Jesus' resurrection? He said to them, now go, tell the disciples and Peter. You see, this momentous event has to be shared. Later on, Jesus would repeat the command to all of his disciples. Matthew chapter 28. This is after he has resurrected, after he has spent significant time with his disciples. He says this to them just before he returns to heaven. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And then he gave them this promise, And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you see, Jesus rose from the dead, and now that means there is a cause with which to live our lives. The cause is sharing the news about Jesus. Our purpose now is to become his disciples by repenting of sin, trusting in him. We become his disciples, and then we have to go and make disciples, tell other people, compel them to believe in Jesus. Christ established the church for this very reason. The church is the vehicle through which the message and the ministry of Jesus are to be broadcast to all the nations. He calls every one of us to be a part of it, to join his church, to receive him in faith, to be baptized, to live our lives making disciples. So his resurrection means we can trust him, means we've got a cause to live for. And finally, his resurrection means that we have not seen the last of Jesus yet. We have not seen the last of Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And many people were around to witness this occur. And after Jesus was long out of sight, they kept looking up at the clouds Finally, an angel came down and said, Why do you keep looking up at the clouds? Don't you know this same Jesus who has gone up from you? He will come back in just the same manner. And in fact, this is how our Bibles end. Revelation 22, verse 20. That's the second to the last verse in the whole Bible. It's the words of Jesus. And he says, Surely I am coming soon. I am coming soon. What's he going to come back for? Well, he's going to come back to establish his kingdom. He's going to come back to do what he promised, to put away sin and evil once and for all. He's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come back to separate those who were his disciples from those who were not. He's going to come back to establish his kingdom on principles of righteousness. That's what he's coming back for. And so, friends, you see, it really does matter what we do with Jesus and his cause. He's alive, and he's coming back. My friend, what have you done with Jesus? Have you come to see him as the Son of God? The one who put on human flesh, lived a perfect life here, 
and then voluntarily went to the cross where he made an all-sufficient sacrifice of atonement for your sins? Do you see him as the man who raised himself from the grave in power and glory, proving all that he said was true? Do you see him as the man now enthroned in heaven, waiting for his father's signal to return when he will judge the living and the dead? Have you come to receive Jesus? No, friend, if you've not done so yet, you could do so today. He extends his invitation to all. He says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He's made it so easy for us to become his disciples. He did all the work. We simply believe in him and his work. We, we receive it. We turn from whatever has been our object of worship, whatever we've given our lives to, we turn it now to him. That's all that it takes. And after you've made that step, going public with your faith, with baptism and becoming a vital part of his church. Friend, if you've already done that, how seriously are you taking his cause? You believe in Jesus, you call yourself his disciple, but are you a part of his body, his church? Are you contributing to his church's effort to make disciples among all the nations? Have you taken up his cause? Do you not see that he deserves your devotion? Having given up heaven's glories to live here among us, to live, die, and rise for our salvation. Does he not deserve our greatest service? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us today. And I, I pray that you would use today's passage to drive home the fact that Jesus is your eternal Son, that he lived, died, and rose for our justification that upon simple repentance and faith he offers to us everlasting life and a cause to be a part of and joy besides. Lord, if there is anyone who realizes their need for you today, would you please work in their hearts such that they have the courage to cry out to you in faith? And Lord, would you help them to reach out to myself or to Pastor Scott or to the Christian loved one who may be seated next to them and, and learn more about the claims of Christ and about their next steps. Lord, would you help them to do that? Would you help us all to live our lives as if Jesus is truly Lord, as if he has a purpose for us on the earth, and as if that purpose is grand and glorious? I pray all of these things in his name. Amen.